I pray, God, but by the end of this service, Lord, we'll walk out of this place knowing that you are real, that you love us, that you care for us. And Father, that all things become possible to him who believes. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said? Amen. 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 Well, when I was three years old, my dad left me and my family. And uh, I'd love to show you a photo of my mom and my sister who he left behind. I know, I was quite cute, wasn't I? <laughs> I left me when I was three years old. Mum struggled raising me and my sister Janine. And, and the area that we lived in was, was one of the roughest areas in London. Uh, I'll explain to you how rough it is. When we would step outside of our house, we would have to step over needles. And there was two brothels that were just around the, 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 the close that we lived in. And uh, there were times that, that prostitutes would take me to school. It was that we were that close. You know, there were drug addicts that we would pass and we were on first name terms. It was, that was my community. That was, that was my world that I was raised in. And mom didn't have the funds to, to move us to anywhere else. And so when dad left, he didn't just leave and say goodbye, but he left, didn't say goodbye, and decided that he wanted to start his life with a whole bunch of women. It wasn't just one woman, a whole bunch of women. And so he went all around the country to start off with having multiple relationships. And we discovered many years later that these relationships, there was 15 to 16 women that he would have relationships with, but it was nothing to do with love and had everything to do with a scam. So my, da my, my dad would be involved with women and then he would steal their money. And so when he left my home, he actually took a loan out of 200,000 pounds worth in my mum's name. So my mum was left with two kids and a 200,000 pound debt. That's like $420,000 of debt. And so she had to carry that. And so mum did the very best that she could. She didn't have many family in London. And so she would work three jobs. I remember one of the jobs because it was after school time. We'd finish school and mum would take us to a third job, which was in a corner shop in a convenience store. And we would have to sit behind the counter. I remember we'd sit behind the counter, me and my sister, and uh, we'd be laughing and joking and, and, and sometimes a little bit cheeky, stealing the chocolates. Well, you know, we're not stealing, we were borrowing the chocolates, right? We put the wrapper back, it counts, it counts. But we would be there until the end, till it would close up 11.30 at night, we're fast asleep, and my mum would carry both of us down this drug-infested street back into our house. And mum continued this as we were growing for years upon years upon years. The struggles, I would hear mum crying at night in her room. And mum didn't know how she was going to get through. And then her mum died and then her dad died two weeks after that. So she was really on her own. Then things got even worse. While we were asleep one night, in our little house in the middle of nowhere, somebody had decided that they wanted to start a fire in the car park underneath our house. Now this started as one person thinking they were committing arson. And so they started this fire on one car, but this car exploded and set alight the other cars in the car park, which then meant that the whole block went up in flames. We're asleep in the house 
as this fire was set. And I remember, I can still remember, I'm like six, seven years old, and I still remember just flashes of moments of the fireman running inside of the house and grabbing me and my sister and and pulling my mum out and bringing us underneath the smoke as we crawled outside of this house, watching our belongings burn to the ground. And so we had to leave that area, as you can probably tell. And mum didn't have insurance. She couldn't afford it. So that was goodbye to our possessions. That was goodbye to everything that we held close, everything that we loved. And so we had to start again. And so mum looked around at what was the cheapest area, what was the cheapest place that we could live. And the cheapest place we could live was an area which was about 45 minutes away from where we live. Now, this area, which we didn't know until we moved in, was the area where the National Front, a political party, a racist political party, had their headquarters. So you can imagine these three cute little black people (laughs) moving to this area, which has got a headquarters of a racist political party. Now, as we moved into the area, we were greeted really nicely. I remember one morning, we hear this knock at the door and it's real early, I'm eating my cereal. And as I'm eating my cereal, the door knocks and we run down to the door and we want to see who's at the door. Like, you know, maybe it's a friend. And then we saw on the doormat underneath the letterbox, someone had left us a gift, a welcome gift. And it was a flaming human poo that had a note that said, welcome to the neighborhood. That was our welcome. That was the way that we were greeted in this area. Mum put us into primary school. And in the primary school, there we go, my first nickname, Daryl the Black Guy. <laughs> and then began the bullying in primary school. And uh, you might not be able to tell right now, but I'm quite the athlete. No, I'm not Usain Bolt. Just putting it out there. Some of you are like, is that Bolt? <laughs> it's not. Some of you are laughing because you're like, that's true. You've just cleared that up there. <laughs> but I got really involved in sport. I was, Dan was telling me today that he was a bit of an athlete as well. He was a runner. Some of you are like, I don't believe it. <laughs> you guys are laughing harder at that one. And so I got involved in sport and, and in, in athletics and in the 100-meter sprint and and in football, real football, you know, the one that you use your foot with a ball, right? <laughs> and so I got involved in this and, and, and I thought that people liked me. I thought that people, people wanted to be around me. I thought that people loved me because people wanted to be on my team and, and people would pick me all the time. So I thought it was loved. I thought that my, my differences meant nothing. I thought that my differences were, were crossed out, that I was like everybody else. But I realized very soon that actually it changed nothing, that everybody still just thought I was just Black Daryl. And the bullying continued for years. And then it got worse and worse. And I remember I hit year six. And at this point, when I'm in year six, I'd, already, I'd moved from sports because I thought that people loved me in sports. So then I started to do music. So I learned how to play the guitar. I learned how to sing. You know, I was just like you. I feel like there is an angel with auto-tune, Pastor John. I feel like there is. 
don't know if you realize that Pastor Danielle said you sound like Michael Bublé when you sing worship anyway. So that, that's, no one, anyone agree? Someone, two people agree. <laughs> but I got involved in music and thought that that was going to be the thing that people would love me for. But really, it just was a catalyst for the bullying. And they said, yeah, you, you switch from sports to music. And it just, the hatred continued. And before I knew it, it got to violence. And when I was in year six, that's when they would violently attack me. And I was bullied as soon as I would leave the school gates. The one time that pushed it over the edge was I was greeted outside of the school gates by one of the, the, the boys who was bullying me. His brother, who was five years older, was standing outside. And I remember he pushed me against the fence. I'm in year six. He pushed me up against the fence and it was the first time I'd ever saw a flip knife. And he pulled out a flip knife and he said to me, I should peel your skin. And I just remember the fear as my heart was racing, thinking that I'm done. What did I do? I just wanted people to love me. I just wanted people to respect me. And I'm about to have my, my life taken because of the color of my skin. I got out of that situation and gladly, a couple months later, I got out of that school and moved to secondary school. Now, I remember walking into secondary school and I'm 11 years old, going into school. I don't know if you remember your first day at school. For some people, it's a lot further away. For others, it's yesterday that you got out of school. I remember my first day having not much money, so we had like the hand-me-down clothes. So I had like my, my sister's uniform from you know, a couple of years ago. You know, I'm just kind of, it's all tight. And I remember walking into the school and as I looked around the playground thinking, who am I going to connect with? Who's going to be the group that I'm going to reach out to? And as I looked around the space, you could see so many different groups. And I kept myself to myself until lunchtime. And I remember walking into the lunch hall and it was all these different people on their different tables. And so I had to make a pick. Who was I going to sit with? And so I took a, made a decision and I just sat in this area with a bunch of lads. And as I sat down with the boys, we really connected and there was some banter and there was some fun and we were these young kids. And, and suddenly this friendship sparked. Over the next few months, the boys began to let me into which area they were from. And they were from a, a rough area in London and and as the months continued, they would show up with wads of cash in school. I'm like, you're 11 years old. Where did you get our money? Like these guys are coming in with the freshest, newest school shoes. And, you know, they just got all the gear. You know, they got the new consoles. They're like coming in with Super Nintendos and Segas. I'm like, this is amazing. And you get those. And they would say, well, we got friends. And they would just continue that. We've got friends. We've got friends. And so after a while, when we hit 12 years old, I wanted to know who these friends were. So I'm like, well, how do you get this cash and how do I get this cash? And so they said to me, well, maybe one day we'll introduce you to these friends. Well, that one day came as they invited me out on the Saturday to play a football game, real football where the ball hits your foot. And as I went out, to play this football game, I, I walked into the field and I'm with like, this, we're, like, we're like 12, 13 year olds walking out into this field, you know, real small. And as we walk out, I looked out and there's like a group of guys. I'm like, they're like 28, 
35. That guy's got no hair. That guy's got a gray beard. Like, they're, the, these guys aren't 13 year olds. And so we started this football match, and, and it was rough, and I enjoyed it. It was fun. And we got to the end of the game, and one of them picked up the ball and then kicked the ball to the other end of the field. I'm like, what's wrong with this guy? Like, that's, does he know that's not how you play the game, right? You gotta get it in the goal. And then the guy turns around and looks at me and says, you, get it. So I'm like, oh, that's rude, but he's bigger than me, so I'm gonna go. And so I ran to the other end of the field. And as I went to pick the ball up, I went down, and as I went to pick the ball up, I turned around and just at a glance I caught as all of the boys came running towards me and they began to flood me with kicks and punches and knock me straight to the ground. I did whatever I could to stand back up again and fight back, but they overpowered me. They were so much older than me, so much bigger than me, and they began to tear into me. But this anger that I had just built up inside of me, I just fought as hard as I could, but then they knocked me straight back down again. And then they walked away. I'm just there lying in my blood at the bottom of this field. And then my friends come running down the hill towards me. And I'm crying, I'm sobbing, I'm like, help, call an ambulance. And they come running down and they're high-fiving each other. And they come up to me and they pick me up and, and I'm sore and they stand me up and they said, Daryl, you're in. I said, in what? Your mates just chumped me. They're like, you're in the gang. I'm like, what gang? We were playing a football game. And before I could finish that sentence, the boys came running back down the hill and they picked me up and they carried me straight to a crack house and they got me addicted to drugs. And then every day after school, they would pick me up in a car with tinted windows that would drive me straight back to that drug house and they would get me addicted to drugs. It began with marijuana, then it got laced to cocaine, then crack cocaine and began to get me addicted every single day. Then they dropped me straight back to my house. This continued for months upon months upon months. And it was against my will. They said, if you don't come, then we're going to hurt your family. And then I realized as this continued, just how serious this gang was. That this wasn't just a small side gang. This wasn't just a few friends, but this was one of the largest gangs in all of London. That they were on a watch list. That they were involved in smuggling drugs all around Europe. And these guys, they would get entry level young teenagers and bring them into the gang and begin to develop them and begin to walk with them, get them addicted to drugs because they knew that you would keep coming back because you needed them. And then once I was addicted to the drugs, then the next step was they then got addicted. They made me addicted to their love. That they would tell me consistently that they believed in me. They tell me that you, you, you're made for something, Daryl. There's gold in you, Daryl. You've got a grit. There's a determination. There's a persistence. And suddenly I felt like these guys love me. My whole life I've been searching for a group of people that would love me. And then I found in this small little crack house in the south of London a group of men who said they loved me. Then they began to expose me. Then the next stage was, they wanted to desensitize me to violence. And so they would take me to different arranged fights. Now I would go to the fights and it began with me just watching. It would begin with them having an informer, trying to get money back. They, uh, someone owed a debt. They would kidnap them, take them to a house. 
and they would take me to, to this place with a group of my friends and they would make us watch. I remember one time this torture went on so long that they held my face and made me watch. And I became so desensitized as time went on and it became the normal that violence was the normal. This is what we do. This is life because these are the people that love me. And then it developed to the point where they said the time to watch is over. Now, Daryl, you need to prove your loyalty. And so the very first time they gave me my very own knife. Now, this is serious. Now, ladies, if any of you are shoe shoppers and you go out and you buy your best shoes, it was like that, but with a flip knife where the guys took me out and they told me, pick your flip knife. So I had an attachment to this thing. This was another level of them saying that they loved me. They bought me a gift. And so I had this flip knife. And I remember them taking me to this one fight. And at the end of the fight, of course they won. They always did. And what they would do is they would, they would fight other gangs and they'd assimilate them. They'd bring them under the wing and the banner of their organization so that, to expand territory where drugs would go around London, around the country. And so when I'm in this fight, they grabbed this one guy, and I'll never forget this moment, as they held him down, and they told me, Daryl, use the flip knife. And I remember I had one moment of decision to make. I had a decision I had to make whether or not I was going to listen. And still, even to this moment, it still grieves me that I opened the flip knife, and I pushed that flip knife in. And at that point, I am 15 years old. And I plunged this knife into this guy. And I remember after they were so happy, but it conflicted with how I was feeling. That this doesn't make sense. And, and I thought, well, these are the guys who love me, so this must be the reality. And so we left. I remember going home and churning and thinking in my head, well, if this is life, then I'm going all in. And that's what I did. I packed my bags and I left home. I walked out. Went and stayed with friends. Mum put missing report out for me, looking for me. I jumped out of school, stopped attending. And I'd just jump around, making money, doing whatever I could. And then I worked my way up. I became ruthless. And it started with a flip nice, then I got my first gun. And then I just got angry. And I began to enjoy it. And this evil gripped me. This darkness was all over me. I was blinded because these guys love me. And so I do all of this violence and the crimes and the big bosses who were in the organization, they began to see that there's this small fry and he's, he's going all in. And so they elevated me and they began to elevate me. I'm like still 15 years old. And they began to elevate me in the organization because they knew that there was nothing that was too bad for me. There was nothing that was too far. And so they'd get me to do as much crime as I could. And they just keep elevating me. In the end, they lifted me up. I became one of the top generals in the organization. This is in the space of 12 months. I'm sitting around the table with men who are 40, 50, men who aren't even on the streets anymore. They're just organizing the deals coming across the border. 15. I was just so angry. And I began to make so much money. And then I thought to myself, I could make more money on my own. So I was a part of the gang. But then I branched out and set up my own drug organization. 
I started bringing in so much money, I didn't know what to do with it. Now, I was 15, so I wasn't clever. I didn't know how to... I'm not saying if you're 15, you're not clever. You are clever if you're 15. But I didn't know what to do with the money. I, I didn't know how to clean money. I had to watch Netflix series about Pablo Escobar. I didn't know. I didn't know how to clean it. So I did what every 15-year-old would do. Every time I'd get 10,000 pounds, I would put it in a shoebox underneath my bed. And then suddenly as the money developed and I got more and more, I kind of ran out of space and put shoeboxes. And so as the thousands of pounds kept coming in, I'd open up, I, I hollowed out a stereo and filled it with money. And so I'm just filling this thing and I'm buying whatever I wanted. I'm just loading out, getting all the new things. I'm buying flashy things. We bought cars, we bought jewelry, we bought whatever we wanted. And I would slip some money back to my mom. When she didn't realize, I'd go over and visit and I'd slip her some money. I'd just slip some in her bag. I'd slip some in her top drawer where she used to keep her stash of money. I thought I was the king. And then my mum became a Christian. She went to church for the first time in a service like this. And knowing that her son was wayward, she turned to Jesus. And Jesus changed her life. And then suddenly my mom's telling me all about this Jesus. She's ringing me, telling me about Jesus. She's showing up at the apartment that we then got. She's like showing up and she's telling me all about this Jesus, telling me about how much he loves me, how much he cares for me, how much he, like, he died for me. I'm like, why would a man die for another man who he didn't know? Doesn't make sense. And she would continue to tell me, it's the gospel, it's the good news. I'm like, it's no good news because it's no news to me because I don't care. I don't believe in this whole God stuff. And I come back, I'm high. I've got blood on me, but still my mom loved me. She spoke to a friend and her friend said to her, you need to, Julie, you need to stop just shouting at him. You need to stop fighting him and you need to start loving him and it was from that moment when she made that decision she would just tell me she loved me she didn't tell me what you're doing is wrong she would just say I love you and Jesus loves you I love you and Jesus loves you and before long it just began to wear on me wear on me wear on me until it became truth maybe she does love me and who's this Jesus maybe I don't believe he's real but Maybe, maybe he does. One morning I stayed over at mum's house. I woke up and I used to get the, the five-star treatment when I'd go home. Mum would wake up early and she'd make me breakfast. And she'd make good breakfast. I'm talking pancakes, bacon, maple syrup, blah, blah, blah. Like it was, it was good. I remember waking up, coming downstairs and I could hear my mum sobbing in the kitchen. And she said, as I came downstairs, I'm like, mum, what's going on? And she said, Daryl. I had a dream last night and in the dream you were in a park and you got attacked and there was a group of men and they almost took your life but then suddenly five angels stood around you and they protected you I'm like woman you're crazy you need to dry your eyes there's no such thing as angels there's no such this whole Jesus thing this whole church thing this is a cult they're taking your money aren't they they're taking your money 
And I was like, it's real. I promise you, these angels, it was something. It was more than a dream. I'm like, I don't believe you. Three weeks later, I get a phone call within the organization asking a very rare, this is very weird, it didn't make sense for a general, to get a phone call to go to a park where there was an arranged fight. Smaller gangs would fight for territory and we would oversee it very much like a denomination, like an organization. And you would fight for territory. And usually we'd send out a leader, you want to say a supervisor that would go to the fight so that you could say who won and who lost. It was very clear because sometimes there was dead bodies so you knew who won or who lost. And so I get this phone call asking if I can go. And so I said, oh, well, fine, all right. I said, as long as I can bring like my lieutenant, the guy who works with me, with me. He said, sure. So we went. He said, it will be a breeze. He said, don't bring weapons because you need to be able to get out quick. So I was like, fine. So we show up at this park. And as we get to the park, I remember walking in and there was like a, 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 you could see the two gangs as they were beginning to, and this is in the middle of a park, right? So you've got to imagine people are walking their kids around the park. There's families. It's like it's a beautiful day. It's in the middle of the afternoon. And then we walk into this park, me and my friend, and he's got his dog with him. We walk in. And as we walk in, it just felt like something wasn't right. And so I looked around and on the park bench next to me, there was a group of men, bald heads, sitting there, stocky, would have been in their 30s to 40s, and they're just sitting there on the bench. I was like, it looks a little bit suspect, but it's okay. And so when we were ready, I looked around, I let the fight commence. And the moment I said, let the fight commence, I kind of stepped back with my friend. And as we stepped back, I felt a knock in the side of my head, which knocked me straight to the ground. I bounced back up again, and as I looked around, I saw one of the bald-headed men with a knuckle duster, and he's on top of me now, and he's hitting me as hard as he can. Adrenaline kicked in, and I slid out from underneath this guy, and I began to run as fast as I could. I didn't care about my friend. I didn't care about anybody else. It was every man for themselves. We used to have a keyword that we would shout if you were ever in a situation, and you would shout starburst, because no one else would know what that meant, and that meant that you were on your own. And if you get caught, you don't say a word. And if you get killed, rest in peace. And so I shouted starburst and ran as fast as I could. And as I ran, I've never been in this park. And so I don't know where the exits are. And I thought it was just the men chasing after me. But then I realized quickly that then suddenly the two gangs had turned around and they were chasing me as well. I then found out later this was a setup because they wanted to take my life. And so they began to chase me through this park. I'm running, my heart's racing as fast as it's ever raced before. And I make my way into this car park. And I think there must be an exit without realizing that I've been running the whole time down a one way on, on the car, on the road to the car park. That was the exit I just ran away from. So I was now trapped in the middle of this car park in a park I'd never been in before and people were beginning to scatter all around the park as they fire shots in the air and clear the park out. I remember as I'm in the car park, I'm asking people, would you help me? Would you help me? It was the first time I felt real fear. And I said, would you help me? And people took their kids and turned away from me. People ran from me. People were throwing their kids over fences to get out of the park. It made it to the news. And so as we're in this park, I'm in the car park and I try to fight as fast as I could, as hard as I could. But then I couldn't fight anymore. And the guys knocked me to the ground and they're playing with me now. There's at least 50 on one. 
And now they're playing with me. And so I just gave up. And I just curled up. And I said to myself, I deserve this. And every evil, bad thing and dark moment in my life flashed before my eyes and said, I deserve to die. I have never loved. And then this guy, wearing a pink shirt, I'll never forget it. He comes running in between the crowd. He opens them up and he pulls out a miniature samurai sword. And he tells everyone back away and he had this smile on his face. And he goes towards me. I'm like, my life's done. I close my eyes. I'm like, this is it. This is the moment. But then suddenly, out of nowhere, these five men, all dressed in white jogging gear, God's got a sense of humor, hey? They surround me. And as they surround me, no one could touch me. And they said two words. They said, stop, leave. And as they said, stop, leave, I'm telling you this, I have never heard a voice like it. It was like instantly fear fell in the park. There was fire in their eyes and they were set on a task. And suddenly, all of the people around began to scatter. They began to drop their weapons in the park. The police actually found all these weapons that were left on the grass. They then said, let's go get his friend. And they go running. And I'm down here on the floor. I've been beaten. I've been punched. I was stabbed in the back twice. And as I'm here on the ground, these five men, they're surrounding me. And I'm trying to speak to them, but they didn't speak to me. They picked me up. They got me out of the park. And as they're beginning to walk towards a bus stop, which is just outside the park, they then get me onto the bus and they take me to the back of the bus. All the people are staring at this man bringing on this bleeding guy and take me to the back seat. And as I get to the back seat, I then said, who are you? Tell me who you are. And they said nothing. They got off the bus and I turned to look out the window. And they were gone. They were gone, vanished, vanished. And then I blacked out. I woke up at the final stop. And the bus driver, he's standing over me. I'll never forget his cigarette breath as he stood over the top of me. And he's beginning to tap me. And he said, mate, mate, you look like you've had a rough night. I said, mate, you've got no idea. And he said, do you want me to call an ambulance? And I said, no, nah, I want you to call my mum. And so he used his phone and he called my mum. And my mum showed up as fast as she could. And I remember her weeping as she got me into her car and she said to me, Daryl, there is no way, there is no way that you can say God isn't real. From that moment, suddenly the eyes of my understanding were opened. I began to think about this Jesus that my mom would be talking about. I began to consider that maybe these five joggers who were dressed in white, maybe, just maybe, mum's dream was right. Maybe they were angels. Maybe they weren't from this planet. Maybe, just maybe, they were there sent to protect me. Maybe this God thing is real. And all of these maybes began to build up in my mind. And all these maybes began to build in my heart until one moment when my mum asked me, Daryl, will you come to church with me? Now, every other moment before, I was like, I will never go to that cult called the church. 
And my mom, that day, got a yes. And she took me to church. And I remember walking into that church building. And I I had one intention. I was going to make everyone as scared as I could. I had my hood up. I had my intimidating face. I was stoned from the night before. And as I walked in, the first guy, and I'm not telling you to do this, because for other people it might be too much, but he just hugged me. Like, he just gave me this big hug as I walked in. And now if anybody touched me in the streets, I'm doing something bad. But in a moment, I just felt disarmed. I walked into the church building and no one was scared of me. I wanted people to know who I was, but it seemed like they didn't care about my street rep. And I remember coming into the service and they began to sing from a stage similar like before we heard the band. And as they began to sing, I'm in the back row. And then I heard, I could hear people singing all around and they're so passionate and I'm staring at these people like, you're weird, like what are you doing? There's no one here. And then suddenly, I just felt the touch of God. The only way I can describe it is as if somebody came from behind me and they hugged me. And I've never experienced a hug like it before. It was almost like it stopped me from moving. It immobilized me. But in one moment, I've never felt so much love. And I'm sitting on the back row and I am just sobbing. I couldn't control it. And then this guy gets up and he begins to speak from a stage similar to me. And I'm just crying and there's people scared around me. They're like, is he okay? Like, should I do something? And then as they're beside, beside me, they're then like, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. And he begins to speak. And as he's speaking, he then says a few words that I don't, didn't really understand. And then he began to talk about a scripture, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son to die on a cross for us, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And as he said that, that this God loved the world that he sent his only son, He said, Jesus, he died for another man and that he loved me so much that he did that. And as he said that, I just remember it was like it resonated in my heart. And then he put this response out. He said, is there anyone here who wants to know this God? And he was kind of going into this rehearsed altar call. And then suddenly I just jumped up and walked straight towards him. Everybody in the room's like freaking out. Like, what is this guy doing? Is he going to jump him? And I just walked straight towards him and I said, I need to know this God. And then in front of the church, he prayed with me and I gave my life to Jesus. And from that moment, my whole life changed. Instantly in that moment, my addiction to drugs broke, gone, gone. I didn't touch another drug. I was completely and utterly in love with God. And I realized that Jesus was completely and utterly in love with me. And I realized this, let me read one scripture and we're gonna wrap up Romans five, verse eight, it says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. His love was towards us before we were towards him. And so maybe you're here tonight And you're hearing my story and you're thinking, well, how can God love me? Well, you're you're looking from a completely wrong way. It's not a how can God love me? It's a God does love you. (laughs) 
And the powerful thing about this scripture in Romans 5.8 is that his love was towards you before you even loved him, before you even chose to obey. And the Bible says that even when you were sinners, sinners basically means you're someone who doesn't obey. So before you decided to obey him, he said, I love you wholeheartedly. And he extends two things, mercy and grace. Mercy means this, that God holds back what you deserve. But then grace is God gives you what you don't deserve. And I look at my life where God extended mercy, where he held back all the judgment for the bad things I did, for all the bad words I said, for all the violence and crime I was involved in. And he held back that, gave mercy with his son, Jesus on the cross. And then he extended grace where he gave me a gift that I didn't deserve, where he gave me eternal life. But then he also said, hey, Daryl, you can have a new start. And now I'm a pastor. Now I'm married. Now I've got a son. That's called grace. That's called grace. I look at my life, I should be dead or in prison. But I'm not. It's all because of the grace of God. It's all because His love was towards me before I was towards Him. The same way His love is towards you before you're towards Him. That when the world tries to call you by your mistakes, God calls you by your name. And the world tells me over and over again, even when I became a Christian, the year after being a Christian, man, it was tough getting out of the gangs. They kidnapped my sister. My sister, got, she's a tough cookie. She got out of the van. She's a tough cookie, I'll tell you that one. And then the violent threats, the death threats came. And I'm like, but I'm out because I knew too much. And so that year was tough. In the church I was in, a group of gang members showed up with ski masks on in the middle of a service, just like this. I had to go out the fire exit. Couldn't go to church for a while. I was so convicted by God for all the crimes that I had committed. I spoke to my pastor at the time who had a relationship uh, with, with the chief commander in the police force. And uh, I asked for a sit down. And so we sat down and I wanted to confess everything to him. And so I sat there in the room and he had the tape rolling. And I began to confess everything that I did. And then he hit stop. And then he said to me, Daryl, give me a minute. And he walks out of the room. He doesn't come back for another hour as I'm sitting there with my leader. Just freaking out, thinking this is it, but it's okay, I got Jesus. I got to prison for what I did. I respect the law of the land. And he comes back in the room and he said, Daryl, we looked at every single case. In this. We don't have enough evidence to take you. I'm like, hold on, I've just, I've just told you that I've committed these crimes. No, 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 but they're not open cases anymore. I'm like, but I'm just telling you, no, Daryl, there's nothing, we, this is the police, there's nothing we can do right now. Thank you for your honesty. Literally what you said to me. Thank you. <laughs> now the world will call that ridiculous. But I call that the grace of God. That's the grace of God. Come on, you're so loved in this place. And just with everyone's eyes closed and their heads bowed in this place, do you realize how loved you are? Maybe you're not a believer here tonight. You are so loved. Maybe you are a believer here tonight. You are so loved. You know, I think the biggest lie 
is that we have to, is that we, the biggest battle that we face is the fight to find love. But I think the biggest battle for every man or woman on this planet is the battle to allow yourself to be loved because you are loved. And so all around this room tonight, I just want to do exactly what the pastor did, gave me an opportunity to be in relationship with this God. A God who doesn't say you're a screw up, you're a mistake. A God who says you are so loved, I know your name. I know who you are, I know your story. And all across this room, with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, because I don't want to embarrass anyone. If you're here and you're saying, Daryl, I know I need to be in relationship with this God. I don't want to leave this place without knowing that my eternity is secured with Him. I don't want to leave this place without saying that I'm right with God. And maybe this is for the very first time. Or maybe this is for the second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever it is. But you're today you're saying, I'm coming home. I want to encounter this love. I want to be in relationship with Him. Friend, let me tell you, this isn't you saying you know everything. This is you saying you know one thing, that you want to know Him. Because I was in your boat. God doesn't care about your last mistake. He cares about your next decision. So just in this place, I'm going to count to three. If that's you here, I just want you to slip your hand up. Don't be embarrassed. This is a new beginning. God loves you so desperately. One, don't miss it for anyone. Don't miss it for no one. You're here on purpose tonight too. For the very first time, or maybe this is you saying, I'm coming back. Three, if that's you here, as I look from the left to the right and you're saying, Daryl, that's me. Awesome, I see you. That's amazing. Is there anybody else here? Awesome, I see you. Is there anybody else here? Awesome, I see you. Awesome, I see you. Is there anyone else? Awesome, I see you, man. I see you, bro. Is there anybody? I see you too, man. I see you both there in the back. That's amazing. I see you as well here in the middle. Anybody else here who's saying, I want to, awesome, I see you, bro. That's amazing. That's amazing. Is there anybody else here? And they're saying, oh, awesome, I see you, man. That's cool, bro. You can put your hand down. That's amazing. Is there anybody else? I see you too, bro. That's awesome, brother. Anybody else here saying, that's me, Daryl, pray with me. I need this Jesus. I know he loves me and I want to know who he is. That's you quickly as I look from the left to the right, front to the back. I see you. Great. That's an amazing decision. That's fantastic, mate. Anyone else? Don't miss it for anybody. He's so real. He so loves you. He's towards you. I really sense that there's somebody here and you feel like there's been no one towards you. You feel like you've had a failed marriage, failed relationships. Maybe you feel like your kids aren't towards you, God's saying tonight. He's towards you. He's towards you. Yeah, that's cool. I see. That's awesome. We're going to say this prayer. And how about we stand to our feet, church, all around this place? Even if you didn't respond, we're all going to stand. And we're going to say this prayer loud enough that we can hear it as one family. Let's say, Jesus, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that you demonstrated your love on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe that you rose again. I ask you to come into my life. Make me a brand new person. I turn away from the way that I've lived. And with the help of your grace and your power, I'll never be the same again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's celebrate with everybody all around this place. Come on. That's awesome. Huh.
That's awesome. And you see this celebration here in this place, how loud that is. The Bible says that there is a celebration in heaven for the decision you've just made.